हेलो एवरीवन एंड वेलकम टू अवंतिका डिजाइनरिंग सीरीज और एडीएस एस वी लाइक टू कॉल इट एवरी वीक ऑन वेडनेसडे वी फीचर डिजाइन एंड टेक्नोलॉजी लीडर्स हु शेयर द प्रोफेशनल जर्नी दर थॉट्स ऑन द डोमेन ऑफ वर्क एंड डिजाइनरिंग वेयर द वर्ल्ड ऑफ डिजाइन एंड इंजीनियरिंग मीट मेक श्योर यू फॉलोअर्स ऑन सोशल मीडिया इंस्टाग्राम लिंकड इन फेसबुक एंड ट्विटर एंड विद दैट लेट्स कंटिन्यू विद योर शो Design thinking is for everyone including non-profit organizations. Despite its roots in the for-profit sector, design thinking is a perfect tool for non-profits to use to solve challenges in their organizations and communities. The need for design thinking in the non-profit world is poised to grow as organizations start to think about more effectively make a difference embracing change. and innovation and so on the eve of teachers day who better than hosting from the mecca of design thinking world ideo.org itself in this episode we interact with shalu mapati managing director for new ventures at ideo.org she is passionate about developing scalable and sustainable solution for the underprivileged by implementing human centered design practices Her experience in the private sector is vivid from global health to mobile technologies. As we move forward in our journey of discovering designering, we bring to you a special episode on the occasion of Teachers Day. So let's get into conversation with Shalu Mapathi. Hello Shalu, welcome to Avantika Designering series. We are honored and it's a pleasure to host you on our show. Thanks so much for having me. So on this Teachers Day special episode we invite you to share details of an individual who has impacted your journey the most. Can you share with us about a teacher and learning from the guru who has impacted this journey of yours? Yeah, that's a a great question on a very important day. Um the teacher that comes to my mind is is my mother actually. Um she has been an incredible pillar of strength and knowledge resilience and hard work um the she came from india after an arranged marriage with my father raised two children while balancing uh, a pretty intense job but was always she kind of modeled the idea of a working mom so she would go work like crazy but then always be home whenever i was there so i never even knew she was working so hard and then um we had uh, an unfortunate uh early passing of my father when i was in high school and she was this incredible person that took up his business also kept such a strong face for our family and then uh kind of kept us on really positive and optimistic traje- trajectories in our lives so i really i really look to her as as my guru um on a day like this um uh, i think that's emotional and i'm sure that today as parents we realize uh, uh the entire jugglery between uh managing work managing uh, you know raising children and uh, i'm sure that it's it's a quite uh, amount of work uh, that that our parents have done for us and our um, 
and are behind the reason for our success. Yeah, definitely. Moving from your uh, gratitude towards your teacher to actually uh, your journey. You haven't been to a design school. You worked in the nonprofit sector, uh, largely in healthcare. And now you are managing director of one of the most sought-after design companies in the world. How did this happen? Can you take us through your professional journey and start connecting the dot backwards? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think my career is the epitome of not planned. <laughs> so um, I started off uh, doing advertising uh, out of my undergrad career. I went to Boston University and then joined a company called Digitas, which was doing a lot of marketing. Uh, they do the creative side of marketing, but I was actually on the analytics side. So really measuring the effectiveness of different types of advertising campaigns. Um, and I had been there a couple of years when uh, when the tsunami hit in 2004. And so that was kind of a really big moment for me to, to kind of question, what is my path? What, what do I want to do with my career? Um, and on kind of throughout my youth and childhood, I was always part of the Chinmaya Mission, you might be familiar, which uh, kind of is this uh, organization that is all about kind of study of Hindu philosophy and culture. Um, and so I always knew that kind of giving back was a part of being, uh, you know, a, a good person. And so for me at that moment, after the tsunami hit, I found myself wondering, should I, should I be doing something professionally that's about doing good? And so that was when I applied for and was accepted into, um, this program called the Clinton fellowship through American India foundation. And so that was a, a one-year program where, you know, about 20 kids every year get placed into nonprofits across India. Uh, and they just get immersed in that space and that, you know, usually sets them on trajectories in the social sector or something like that. Um, and so I was placed at this amazing small nonprofit called Bhumika Trust in Chennai and was able to work directly on tsunami rehabilitation work. And so that was honestly one of the most magical years of my life. I lived in Chennai where many, a lot of my family, my extended family lives. So my, I would get to see my grandmother all the time, but then at the same time be going and seeing a different side of Chennai that I that I had never seen before. So going into the fishing villages um, outside of the city and understanding how the tsunami affected their livelihoods um, and, and kind of tried, tried a bunch of programs. I, I built one program that was a total failure. So it was, I had, I had seen that there were so many donations of boats after the tsunami um, that fishermen were actually catching less because they were going out to sea by themselves. And so I said, well, what if we could get some of these fishermen steady income? Uh, and then there were all these manufacturing companies along the coast. So I said, I called up a few of the managers and said, would you be willing to hire some of these fisher, fishermen, fishing women, um, if they're interested in jobs? And they said, yeah, yeah. So then I, I even built a mini training program and then inter had them go to interviews and a bunch of them got placed. And then when I checked up 30 days later, only one of them had continued in the job. And I think that was my first little dance with human centered design where I realized that I was not designing for the lifestyle that these, uh, that the fishing community was used to, um, you know, they would go to sea when they felt like it and suddenly going, reporting into a nine to five job was not right for them. Um, but anyway, so that was, I mean, it was an amazing place. I, I launched that program and then I launched another program, which still exists called true gifts, which, um, kind of connects, uses Bumika's kind of really core competency of being the glue across different nonprofits 
to resource funding from uh, from people who want to give donations to actually products and services that nonprofits need. But while I was there, I was really curious about what is the role of you know the social sector, but also using business thinking and what how how do we design scalable, sustainable solutions? And that prompted me to go to business school. Um, so I went to I went to University of Chicago's Booth School of Business and um, was able to do a couple of studies abroad, essentially, while I was there. And there were kind of these consulting projects that we did with Barclays Bank. My first year, I went to Botswana to look at um, agent banking. This was kind of in the early days of Safaricom itself. And so we kind of proposed a model that was similar to that uh, uh, for Botswana. And then my second year, I did Islamic banking work in uh, the UAE, which was also really interesting. So again, like this was, these are moments that really cemented my interest around business and social good. And then after graduating business, I, from business school, I wasn't exactly sure which part of the nonprofit sector to jump into. So I went into strategy consulting, thinking that that would put me on the path. Um, so I joined Bain and Company in Chicago, and that was an amazing, you know, training ground to learn about, you know, structured thinking around problem solving, really great exposure to C-level executives and how they think about problems. But I really did not feel like I was getting closer to this kind of long-term passion around social impact. Um, so I jumped ship when the economy was also not great. <laughs> and then um, ended up joining an organization called Apt Associates, which is based in DC area. And they do USAID uh, they work on a lot of USAID large multi-year grants. And so I worked on this project called the Shops Project, over, which is a kind of a large five-year program around private sector and health. And so that was an amazing time for me to just learn about the role of the private sector, uh, my skill set, and then how it could bridge into the world of global health. Um, and so I was working with you know, nonprofits and health clinics uh, in multiple countries in Africa and helping them bring business strategy to the way that they were kind of running their organizations. Um, and really just got, it was my first time going to the African continent. So went to, I think six or seven countries within a, a few years. So that was a tremendous, uh, experience for me. Um, and then I think I kind of felt like we're all sitting in Washington, DC, designing things in other places. And sometimes the reality of what people's lives actually are, don't make sense with what we're, we're being asked to design as a program. Um, and so I started looking around and at that time, IDEO.org had a fellowship program to bring in um, people who didn't really have design backgrounds. And so I kind of on a whim, I think the application required a, some kind of video submission. So I think Christmas Eve, I pulled an all nighter and made a stop motion video for my application. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, and then I, I was accepted, which was shocking. And then that, uh, that kind of created a whole other set of things that happened. So at that point I was married, I had a one-year-old, it was a one-year fellowship. So I moved with my son into my parents' house in uh, the Bay Area and my husband stayed on the East Coast and then did this one year whirlwind of like, every time I would go to Africa, I would drop off my son in DC. One of my mother-in-law might fly in from India then <laughs> I would go out to Africa, come back, pick up the kid and then go back home. It was crazy. Um, but at the same time, I was really just like so energized by finally understanding the end user, making sure that the solutions were based on what they're actually needed, what was actually relevant for their lives. Um, and so that kind of has been, then I just stuck around at IDEO.org. So I, I went on to lead partnerships for the organization. Um, I led the San Francisco office for some time. I've led the 
uh, a practice called the prosperity practice, which has been around um, economic empowerment and uh, revenue generation for, for women and farmers and different kind of communities. Uh, and then now I've been doing a bunch of um, things around new ventures. So what are what are new models um, that enable us to play beyond just philanthropic programming? Um, and so that's also been really exciting. So yeah, definitely never none of the moves have been planned, but they've been really interesting, and I'm very grateful for for the opportunities I've had. Super. That's that's absolutely exciting and inspiring to hear. Um, in fact. All, all these work opportunities gave, you know, also gave you an opportunity to explore, understand various cultures uh, from India, Africa, UAE, US. So, so that's really exciting. What I wish to ask you next is, what inspires you to do all of this? I mean, working in philanthropic, nonprofit, uh, uh, you know, domain. Uh, supporting marginalized communities is a is 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 absolutely a tough job. It's it's not um, as easy as it looks. So, what inspires you to do this? I mean, I honestly think it's such a privilege to even be able to work in the space. I, and I think the problems are definitely some of the toughest problems in the world. And so, if I, I think the idea of like if I can contribute to the improvement of even a few people's lives, then that then I've, I've done my work, right? And so I think for me, that idea of, of my energy should be going to not, not towards selfish means, right? I think that my, that's kind of just one of my values. And so um, the idea that if, if I can even make my work be something where I'm helping people, then, then that's, that's a dream. So I, I'm, yeah, I, I kind of can't imagine it other, in any other way, but I, I know that, you know, it's, it, it doesn't always, pan out in everyone's uh, careers to be able to plan for that. But I think now I've realized that, um, you know, anywhere I go from here too, I'm going to demand that that's what I'm doing because that that's just the, that's the work I'm here to do. When you moved to the world of design, um, I'm sure that uh, it wouldn't have been easy to gel into it. And today you are a, a design leader. So did you have to go out and build specific skill sets, learn design principles over the years? How were you able to integrate this entire world of design, uh, uh, you know, with, with the kind of work that you've been doing? Yeah, I mean, I think when I first joined IDEO.org, I definitely had no idea. <laughs> I didn't know what design thinking really was. Um, I just knew that we're putting the end user first and that sounds great. Um, and I think for me, the magic of design research, the magic of prototyping, the magic of working with partners and then they're able to do it and they don't need us anymore. Like all of that is just really a beautiful arc. And I think I had probably seen different pieces of it in different forms in other parts of my career, but to see it brought to life um, in a single process and a single experience was great. And so I think the way that I learned it was basically by being thrown into a bunch of design teams. Um, so I was basically a business designer when I when I joined, and so that meant you know sometimes designing a social enterprise and sometimes pricing a product you know a seed or fertilizer product for a farmer. So that, and that that you just when you're in the team environment and you're working with more experienced designers, that's that's where you do um, the best learning. And so that that's really helped me quite a bit. Um, and then I think the the curiosity to continue learning and getting exposure. So 
part of my journey, um, one of the pieces of advice I got from Patrice, who's co-founder of IDEO.org, um, was to uh, talk to a bunch of established designers and ask them, what do you think is best in class design? Bring, bring me a few case studies for our conversation. And so that allowed me to also see kind of the beauty of design from many people's lenses. And then that eventually allowed me to kind of get to my own point of view um, around, around what, I, what I care about most. Hey, did you know IDEO and IDEO.org were awarded a total of four International Design Excellence Awards by the IDSA. Winning designs ranged from designing a scalable network of K-11 schools in Peru to an exploration into the future of automobility. In fact, one of the other things, Shalu, that you know intrigues me about IDEO, IDEO.org uh, is you know, when it comes to knowledge, unfortunately, conventionally, it is seen as a thing to be hidden and not shared in the world. However, the spirit that you have at IDEO, we see so many blogs, case studies, so many videos that are very openly shared and the organization is always willing to share their experiences and learning. What are your views about compete versus collaborate and is knowledge to be shared or is it to be hidden? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, to me, uh, you know, especially when we're doing this work around social good, if knowledge is hidden, then we are we are missing the boat. Like we are, there are people's lives that we can be supporting, and we are wasting time and energy if we're not sharing. So I completely am on the boat of collaboration and sharing. Um, I think that some of the uh, like even some of, some of the efforts that I'm working on right now are around trying to break down the silos that sectors have. And it's really not easy. I mean, it, it's easy to be a design organization and we kind of tell all of our partners up front, anything we do, we want it to be open source. Are you game for that? And so now we've, we have enough of a reputation that that's the case. Um, but I would say, you know, to others in the sector who sometimes feel like they need to protect what they're working on, take the leap. You know, take the leap and, and see the, the good that comes from sharing. And um, there was one other thing I was just thinking about. I, I was thinking about how um, in the, oh, what was it? Compete versus collaborate. Anyway, maybe it'll come back to me in a little bit. But yeah, I ba basically, yeah, collaborate, do it all the time. <laughs> That's my advice. Um, you know, at IDEO.org, uh, uh, you know, you do a couple of things uh, with with its team members to address the challenge of creativity on demand. What's your mantra for it? How do you handle creativity on demand? So, so you go in for a client conversation and they expect you to come up with ideas. They come up, uh, you know, they expect you to come up with solutions. How, how are you... Uh, how are your teams always ready to come up with solutions? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of pressure if you're if you're telling yourself you need to come up with some solution on the spot. Um, so I think for me, I draw a lot of inspiration from you know thinking about analogous sectors. 
So I think because now I've worked in a, a bunch of different sectors, I can kind of say, okay, this problem fits this type of category. How have I seen it play out in a different place? And then that kind of creates one idea that other people can piggyback off of. Um, and then I think also a big part of, for me is that I've learned to just be comfortable with, with my own brain, <laughs> which works in its own funny way. And if some if something crazy comes up in my brain, just say it out loud because then my brain can move on to the next thing. And maybe that crazy idea had something to do with the solution anyway that someone else can pick up on. And so I think part of, so yeah, my, my two are probably the like connecting it to other content areas and then just trusting that whatever comes to your brain is going to be helpful in some way or it helps you move on to the to the next best idea. So this approach that you just mentioned about sounds more like a gut feel based approach. But is there any systematic way also that you uh, work in terms of training your your team members, uh, you know, to to start coming up with solutions on demand? Are there any scientific methods that you apply for the same? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what we're talking about. So like if it's a brainstorm, then that's that's a different type of thing, right? Where you're just trying to do generative, get to quantity, do as many ideas as possible, and then we see what comes from it. But when you're actually designing a solution, right? Um, it's, it's much more rigorous, I would say. It's kind of, you start with research and insights that surface from that research. And then it kind of leads you to an area of questions about what are the areas we still don't understand that we need to use prototyping to help us navigate. And then once you fill in the gaps in your knowledge from what you've prototyped, then that helps you get to a point of view on the solution. So I don't, I don't, I don't think there's ever been a situation where on the spot, you know, we just designed what the solution is. It's, I think um, it's a very thoughtful process to kind of go through um, all, you know, all the different steps um, to be able to get to a solution. So over the years, uh, Shalu, IDEO and IDEO.org um, has used design interventions to persuade companies to change. Can you tell us something more about this? How do you, uh, you know, how do, how do you organize design interventions so that companies can start changing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's probably about finding, figuring out what the journey is that the different you know partners or clients have. And so many times they will come to us for something very specific, but by working with us, they kind of realize that they need to go through their own internal transformation or internal adoption of new mindsets and behaviors um, that, and they have to kind of be ready to go on that journey. I think many times those relationships really thrive when the leadership at the organization actually is ready to say, hey, we're stuck and we need some help. Um, and, and that kind of saying, I'm ready to bring in someone to help me, that's kind of the first step. And then after that, it's kind of like, how, how do we show them enough about the design thinking process that they start to see how it can be so relevant to their own organization and their own strategy? Uh, and so sometimes that could be designing, you know, a single project, product or campaign or something like that. Um, and then eventually there's, there could be like a much broader mindset and ideally, you know, they start to build the capability in house so that they don't need to bring in, um, organizations like us because they've, they've actually, they want to be able to do it themselves. Interesting. So moving from the methodology, um, at IDEO to the culture at, uh, 
you know, what you follow at IDEO. So at IDEO, play is considered a very serious business. Though it's work with clients, which include uh, NGOs, governments, commercial brands, team engage in playful exercises from role-playing to collaborative work problem solving and building physical prototypes. How do you go about building this culture? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, I think it's it's really originated from, you know, the, the legacy of IDEO and the whole idea of, you know, work can be play and that working with friends can actually do incredible things. Um, and I think that 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 legacy that's over, you know, 40 years of, uh, of um, experience has actually, you know, it's, it's ingrained in all of our DNA at IDEO, at IDEO.org. Um, and I think it also, I think it's now known enough that we can, we bring it with us wherever we go <laughs> and that we can kind of do it with confidence and ease. And many times when you go to some of these more serious organizations, they're so relieved to finally be in a meeting where they don't have to sit up so straight or where they can, you know, blurt out the first thing that comes to their mind without thinking. Um, and so many times it's uh, our playful exercises are things that are in, in our DNA, but then they also are so craved by the, the partners that we work with. So it, it actually is really easy to bring it into new environments. I mean, unless you're going into a room where they don't actually want you, that that's when play can kind of feel a little bit silly or, or tough. But in most situations, everyone is really just yearning for a moment to, to think differently and to just get a breath of fresh air. At one point in time, uh, you know, you mentioned that it's, it's a part of your DNA, which we understand at IDEO, but do you have someone like a chief, um, of culture officer or chief of, uh, you know, play at work officer who keeps coming up with these interesting ideas to ensure that there's always play at work. How, how do you keep this going? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think what we do is we try to distribute ownership of different parts of our culture and process uh, throughout our organization. So for example, at IDEO.org, we have a team that's the, um, they call themselves the digital collective. And so that set of designers from across all of our studios, they, they're they kind of thinking about what's the next technology we want to work on? How do we want to approach it? What types of ideas can we bring as we, as we move that forward? Similarly, we also have in San Francisco, we call it the X team, which is the experience team. And that's also a cross section of um, people in that studio. And they are all responsible for people's experience when they come into the physical space of our studio. And now virtually also, like what, what is the experience for all of our um, team that's distributed and working from home? And, and I think by distributing that ownership, it's not the pressure is not all on one person's uh, shoulders to solve all of culture, right? It's now everyone has a little piece of it and they can be bold and they can take risks and try things out. And, and it's, it's always evolving. Uh, and I think doing it in a team structure also eliminates that pressure for having it be a single person so that they kind of they're they're building off of each other's ideas. So I think I think that way of kind of creating little pockets and then distributing ownership of that type of um, creativity and play has really helped us. So this has really helped in IDEO's, uh, you know, ecosystem. But when you talk about IDEO.org specifically, when you're talking about social impact, when you're talking about marginalized communities, 
do you do something different as far as culture is concerned is there an additional layer of uh, being sympathetic uh, you know more than empathy as well to the entire situation and challenges around with people yeah i mean many times the topics that we're working on are really heavy and they're really challenging and so when we're working with communities uh, many times we're designing the games and you know whatever activities we're doing it in conjunction with an organization that's on the ground that's de- deeply embedded so that allows us to make sure that we're coming up with um kind of approaches that are relevant and and are kind of timely and make sense uh for for the type of conversation we want to have and then i think on the flip side of it is for our own team members who sometimes you know you talk about uh transactional sex in east africa right that's a very heavy hard topic to work on and sometimes this kind of way of uh, of using play that helps to dis- dissipate some of the tension and the stress that comes from doing this work um obviously it's not the solution for when people need to um kind of have more serious interventions and talk things through with a therapist or something like that but it, i think the the play is is beneficial for our own people but then also when we're designing with communities another part interesting part of ideos culture that it's been known for is uh is the uh, helping uh, culture which is out there so few things leaders can do are more important than encouraging helping behavior within their organizations and in the top performing companies it is a norm that colleagues support one another's efforts to do best work that's possible how has ideo managed to make helping as a norm within the company i mean i think the the person that embodies this most is actually ideo.org ceo jocelyn um she is she will respond to almost any email that she gets and to any uh you know linkedin conversation that's you know re- people reach out to her i think she has she kind of holds herself accountable to always be helping as much as possible and that trickles down through our entire organization and and sometimes that it doesn't mean that she does calls or personal emails with every single person but she passes them on to the right people or she uh, you know gives them access to resources that help them figure out their challenge um and so that um i think i've learned the most about about that from her i still tried to I still miss many of the emails that do come my way but um but I always aspire to try um to be you know of service to as many people as possible the the follow up question to that shallu is that how did you go about building this culture how did you make people realize how did you make these this this actually change happen so so if i was to join your company how do you help me actually imbibe this culture within my work it might just be because everyone else is doing it around you <laughs> i think there's all, i mean part of it is that we've created a culture where you can ask for literally anything and then also the culture exists that people try to be helpful in in response and i think if you join a company and you see people of all different levels and all different parts of the organization trying to help each other out then you also want to be part of that and that you want to either benefit from it or you want to contribute to the to the helping side of it so um i honestly i don't think there's anything in particular we do around building that culture but i think because 
it's there and people want to participate and they, and it's, you know, it's all, it's all about helping. So, every, <laughs> and if you're at IDEO.org, you want to be helping. So I guess um, uh, it might be just part of the DNA of many of the people that are on our team too. This is amazing. San Francisco-based IDEO.org received the Bank of the West Innovation and Philanthropy Award, which recognizes a visionary, ambitious, and entrepreneurial nonprofit organization that employs new and creative approaches to addressing challenging social issues that especially affect the underserved communities. Very, very exciting. And um, it's, it's so intriguing that, you know, we all want to jump around and see that, hey, how, how, how does that happen? So moving, Shalu, from, uh, you know, the culture at IDEO to the world of technology. And there's something really interesting uh, that you uh, all do at IDEO as well uh, around this. So my, my, my first question around that is today we have virtual reality, augmented reality, digital assistant present, uh, exciting opportunities for future. But how can we ensure that we are designing for what people really want? I work a lot in digital digital financial services and then now also around just like digital and and communities that may, may not even have, like especially like think about rural women who may not own the phone, but we're designing phone-based services for her. Like how... How does that even make sense? How do we make that relevant for her? Um, and so I think the there's a huge onus on us as designers, as people who work at companies that are designing products like the handsets, the software, the apps, to be making sure that those solutions are more and more relevant for the user that is the hardest to reach or the user that's not the norm. Um, there's the saying that we often use um, of like, you can, if you design for the extremes, you know, if you think of like a, a bell curve and if you can design for the two extremes on either side of that bell curve, you can most likely design for everyone that's in the middle. Um, and so if we really kind of put that pressure and that expectation on actors in the system to meet people where they are, that's when we're gonna actually see all of these technologies actually take off and be relevant to this audience. Um, and one example of that is a, is a project we recently did um, through a program called Last Mile Money. And we collaborated with uh, Google's Next Billion Users team to create an open source toolkit. So any digital product developer can basically go to this toolkit and get a set of starter ideas for voice, for um, iconography, when you're thinking about rural audiences that are new to the internet. Um, and, and so I think the more we can kind of create those types of resources and then also be putting pressure on actors in the ecosystem to show up differently for this group um, or these sets of users, then that's that's really what's necessary. Wow, exciting. So, you know, another thing that uh, if you read a lot of IDEO content on uh, Medium and blogs that you published, uh, you are focused on a data-driven design approach. The question is, how do we get into the details of data and how do we use data to inspire design? Uh, well, I came from 
a quant background, so I love data. Um, and the the role of data and design is amazing to see over the last few years how it's become close closer and closer to being hand in hand all the time. Um, you know, one one example of this is a is a program that um, that I work on called Women and Money, which is around women and access to financial services in emerging markets. And we used a bunch of quantitative data to tell us, you know, what were the characteristics that were bubbling up around different kind of pockets of women and their ability to uh, kind of their self-reported data around ability to use digital. And then what we did was we went and followed up with qualitative insights um, by spending time in communities. And then we basically took a step back and said, did our hunches that came up from the quantitative analysis actually map to what we saw in our qualitative work? And then if there were still questions, we were able to go back and answer those. But that, that kind of marrying of both the quant and the qual allows us to bring the level of rigor in our work up so significantly. And then the other part of data that I'm really excited about in our work is when we do prototyping that we're using kind of actual measurement techniques to understand whether solutions are working in the way that we were, asked, we were hoping that they would work and they play out in a community or if we do a live prototype for a few weeks at a time, what are the set of variables that we're measuring to be able to hold ourselves accountable to say, did this work or did it not work? And so I think we're getting, we're getting more and more um, kind of nuanced in the way that we approach that, but quantitative data allows us to definitely push the quality of our work, which, is, which has been very helpful the last few years. Interesting. In fact, while I was building a startup, I worked on a concept called as minimum viable product, MVP. But while researching all these questions for you, I stumbled upon an interesting thing that all of you work at IDEO on is called as the minimum viable data. So rather than collecting everything that uh, you know we could possibly collect, uh, we minimize the privacy concerns and maintain trust by capturing only the information we need and retain it for as long as we need it. The question that I have is as designers, when I understand the user research process, uh, because you're trying to capture someone's behavior, there's a tendency to capture a lot of information and data. How do you actually gauge what is the minimum viable data that you require to, to work on? I, th I kind of think of it as a, it's not exactly like if you imagine a funnel, but then the sides of the funnel are wavy. <laughs> um, I kind of think of it as how do you make sure you're gathering enough information so that you're able to progress through the funnel. And as you're progressing through the funnel, you probably need less data, but you need enough to be flexible um, to get to the right answer. So like I can, I can maybe talk it out a little bit more too. The, um, like if you, if we, there was um, a social enterprise project that I worked on um, in, in the DRC and that in that project, we started off saying, okay, we want to do, combat under five mortality, have a business model that works, um, but also have relevant health services. So we started off asking all of these questions around how much money could even make sense from a user if we we're going to charge for services. How much does it, how much, like what are their current health visit experiences like? Um, 
have, have they ever engaged with a business like this before? And then as we got more and more clear on what the components of the business were, then our questions became a lot more specific, which is, you know, if we offered this particular service at this price, would you pay for it? Right. And that's a much more specific question. And, and that allowed us to kind of continually get data, but the data was specific to where we were in the learning journey. So moving from the world of technology to asking you, you know, few questions on education. Education institutions often remain provider focused than user focused, even as they struggle to evolve. What would happen if every college and country created a user experience team? What's your view on that? When in when you say that the education institutions are provider focused, does that mean kind of self interest as a as an institution? Uh, more than self interest, it's a provider focus where we've conventionally defined what are the things that you uh, will go out and study, and and we are focused on ensuring that we provide that curriculum information to to these students, and 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 then they move on, but. Um, uh, you know, the world has evolved. Uh, there are a lot of things which are changing. In fact, this question comes from a blog uh, that is written by IDEO, uh, which talks about that. Can we bring in user experience uh, or user-centered uh, design as far as the learning itself is concerned from a student's perspective? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine, and I'm not, you know, a deep expert in the education space, but I would imagine that there are some things that we know that, make a lot of sense from an education perspective and to get that type of experience from an educational institution. But there's so many other parts of our learning experience that have to do with individuals, what their interests are, what their skills are, how they learn, um, that it just, the, the, the concept of, you know, everyone has to sit and learn exactly the same way through the same process. Like, it's just not logical in the way that we know. So I, I would love that idea of a user experience team in a college that kind of imagine if we had archetypes of different types of students that could go through their own journey and that they're, they didn't have to decide on a track within six months, but they, you know, they, if they were the kind of person that came in and knew exactly what they wanted to do, then they had a set of options. And if they wanted to be in explore exploration mode, then they could also have kind of the world is their oyster kind of tour of the world. And so I think that that would be really beautiful and, and would allow people to actually get what they need from their academic institution, as opposed to what the institutions tell them they should have. Super. Another question on education. Can you share with us any one project that you worked on uh, where while contributing with your skill sets and experience also, you learned a lot um, on that project as well. So can you share one of such pro projects that has deeply impacted your learning and development? Um, so a specific project that's deeply impacted my learning. I guess one that was really interesting was one that we did uh, with the Rockefeller Foundation that was about um, kind of a, lo a lot of the food waste that happens on the farm and then before it gets to kind of a marketplace. Um, and there's actually like, I think a huge percentage of crop that's, that gets lost between the point of harvest and then uh, to, the, uh, to the point that it's in, in the hands of someone in a market. Uh, I think it's something crazy, like 40%. Um, 
And so basically Rockefeller Foundation said, hey, this is all happening with smallholder farmers around. Can you help us understand why all of these innovations we've built are not being adopted by farmers? And so that was, for me, that was one of my first projects in agriculture. So I was able to go to both Kenya as well as Senegal and see two very different contexts. Uh, and really, I mean, the amount that I learned about the difference between, you know, fruits and vegetables, the second you pick them, you're on a, you know, you know it's, you're on a ticking time bomb. You have to sell that thing as fast as you can, especially if you don't have refrigeration. And then learning about grains and cereals, which it's not about the time, they kind of, farmers use it as almost their bank account. So if you put, you save that, uh, you know, that grain in a, in a good bag, then that's your bank account. But if you're, storage techniques are bad then and you have rodents or something like that then you have no idea how much you've actually put into that storage facility so i think things like that that i had never even because i'd been working in global health before that um that just kind of rocked my world to think about the role of um crops how they connect to market how different technologies um can actually support them and then how current practice actually um can can lead to farmers not even knowing uh, how much they can make in a few days when their product has, has to get sold in market. So there's so many, and it's really kind of created a passion for me around the ag, ag space and kind of bringing transparency and agency to the farmer because so many parts of the system are actually working against them. So um, that's been, I think that's the sector that I've learned the most uh, while at IDEO.org. Wow, interesting. And that brings me to my final question on our show, which is that at Avantika University, we use a blended approach uh, of learning where we blend design and engineering. Uh, we call it designering in, in our language, uh, uh, you know, to, to coach the talent of future. What do you think? Uh, is this a good approach and is there a demand uh, for the new breed of uh, talent or, or, or workforce to actually start thinking and performing designering tasks? Yeah, 100%. I mean, obviously, that's coming from a biased point of view, <laughs> the beliefs of the imp importance of bringing design with other disciplines. But um, yeah, 100%. Design plus engineering makes a ton of sense. I think the more we can be understanding who the end user is and making sure that that's incorporated into the products we're building, the more that we're bringing in kind of an inquiry-based mindset into engineering teams, that's going to be hugely successful. The more we can prototype um, and, and test things out before they roll out to market, that's going to be hugely valuable. So I'm, yeah, design, what is it? Design, how do you say the word? <laughs> it's design engineering. Designering. Designering. Okay, I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Shalu, for joining us on our show. Thank you for doing this. I'm sure uh, the entire conversation has been filled with a lot of inspiration, a lot of guidance for how our listeners could actually pick up some of these things and go out and do magical work out there. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Yeah, happy to happy to do this. And so, so wonderful talking with you. Hey there, we hope you enjoyed our show. Do write to us on ads at the rate avantika.edu.in. We look forward to your opinions, feedbacks and suggestions of speakers you would like us to host on this show. 
Do tune in our channel next week on Wednesday for a new story on Hub Hopper or wherever you get your podcast from. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter.